Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spoke concerning Judas, who was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased the field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue a keldama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein. <clears throat> that is our text. All of Gaul, according to Julius Caesar, is divided into three parts. And so are many sermons, according to traditional homiletics. The three parts of my sermon this morning are Part one, the gospel from the text. Part two, the gospel from the context. And part three, the gospel from the gospel handle. First, the gospel from the text. The subject of our text is Judas's defection and demise. Of this topic, Peter says, this, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled. He refers, of course, to Old Testament prophecies of this development that had now been literally fulfilled. But Peter is suggesting more than the symmetrical matching of fulfillment with ancient prophecy. The frequent refrain in the Bible that the scripture might be fulfilled, applies also to the sum total of prophecies about Jesus. It's a way of saying that behind all the disparate and uh, sometimes desperate, as in our text, that behind all the disparate developments of the messianic narrative, there is a plan, a master plan and a long-range plan going all the way back to eternity. God is in charge. He's in control. He knows what he's about. God is not the hapless victim of human stupidity and human wickedness. Even error he overrules, and even evil he utilizes in his saving plan for humankind particularly with its use of the phrase must needs have been fulfilled. The uh, Greek word is day. Our text suggests the above-the-scene activity of God, ruling over the behind-the-scene shenanigans of Judas and his cronies. In short, our text is talking about not just a plot by men, but also the plan of God. So what's the point? There's gospel in this suggestion. 
We have a God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is never caught napping. Our salvation is not a whim or caprice or a, a knee-jerk reaction. It is not a desperate answer to an unforeseen development. Our God is ready with solutions before problems occur. He has willed our salvation. He means business, and he'll see it through to the finish. Any monkey wrench tossed into the salvific plan turns out to be ultimately just another cog in the salvation works of God. Second, the gospel from the context. Peter's discussion of uh, Judas occurs in the context of Peter's proposal to uh, fill the vacancy created by Judas's death with another disciple. And look at the criterion. That replacement must be a person who was an actual eyewitness of Jesus' ministry, including, including his resurrection. The context suggests a pun on the word witness. Witness in the sense of a preaching, such as I'm doing right now, and witness in the sense of seeing. To witness the resurrection, that is to preach the good news of Jesus risen, the early church required a witness of the resurrection. That is one who had actually seen the risen Lord. So what's the point? There's gospel in this pun. The resurrection of Jesus is both an historical event and an ongoing proclamation. There is something to preach about, objective reality. And that something must be preached, subjective activity. The resurrection of Jesus is a part of this world's history. Let us never, never forget that. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. But the historicity of Jesus' resurrection is not enough. It is a necessary phenomenon, oh yes but not a sufficient phenomenon. We dare not leave the resurrection to crumble in the archives of antiquity. We need to tell the story every day and every way, for that story packs a wallop. It is the power of God unto salvation. Third, the gospel from the gospel handle. A keldamon, the field of blood in verse 19, is that gospel handle. A keldama, the field of blood, is merely the name given to the field purchased by the chief priest with the 30 pieces of silver that Judas flung back into the temple before he hanged himself. How easily this field of blood calls to mind that greater field of blood of the Passion story, Golgotha, the site of Jesus' execution, where his blood was indeed shed for the salvation of the world. There are some intriguing parallels between these two locales, besides the fact that blood was 
shed at each. There was likely a tree in each case, the tree from which Judas hanged himself, and uh, the tree of the cross on which Christ was put to death. Both deaths were voluntary, but uh, Judas was a suicide, and Jesus was a sacrifice. Both men were numbered. Judas numbered with the 12 apostles, according to verse 17 of our text. Jesus numbered with the transgressors, according to Isaiah 53. Not only geographically positioned between two malefactors, but more profoundly, numbered with the transgressors by God his Father, that is, made sin for us, and considered by God as a transgressor of every sin ever committed in the history of the world. Of Judas, it is said in verse 20 of our text, let his habitation be desolate. But of Jesus too, it could be said that his habitation was desolate, desolate indeed, when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Both fields of blood were sites of damnation. Judas uh, went to his own place, according to verse 25. Jesus suffered hell in our place, according to Galatians 3.13. But uh, th these parallels are superficial. They exist only as a foil, a background, to bring into clearer focus the sharp contrast between these two fields of blood, the potter's field and uh, the place of the skull. The one is a site of infamy, the other a site of salvation. The one is a symbol of the ultimate despair of one individual. The other is a symbol of eternal hope for humankind. The one is a locale for the suicide of the son of perdition the other the locale for the sacrifice of the Son of God. The one signifies hell, period. The other signifies hell in our behalf for our salvation. So what are we ending up with? Three doses of gospel? Is more necessarily better? Can we quantify the gospel? Three different sermons, perhaps. Is my message today as, as fractured as Caesar's gall? Well, I guess it is. Yet not entirely. The death and resurrection of Jesus are a unity. In our gospel, we preach Christ crucified and risen hyphens between those words, crucified and risen, tying them together. Ours is a message with two different natures, so to speak, but constituting really one piece of good news. What's more, these two events, the crucifixion and the resurrection, are merely the climactic and final rungs of a ladder extending all the way back to the incomprehensible reaches of eternity. They are the culmination of the plan of God to save us for heaven 
and to make us good people here on earth. And goodness knows we desperately need his help in both of these areas, don't we? Even so, do it, Lord God. Amen.